Okay, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So I'll give you a moment to do that. I'll open us up in prayer, and we'll start studying Isaiah again this morning. Father, we are grateful for Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. By placing our faith in him, we are adopted into the family of God, and we can come before you where only righteousness can go. We know we have no inherent righteousness of our own, but we know that we have the Lord's righteousness when we place our faith in him, and therefore we are enabled to stand in your presence. And we thank you for this amazing grace gift of salvation that you have provided for everyone who believes. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to be alert for opportunities to uh, present the gospel to other people who maybe don't know it well or haven't have heard it correctly presented so that they might place their faith in Jesus as well and be adopted into the family of God. It's an amazing truth and it's an amazing thing and the world needs it. Uh, we pray for Israel and Jerusalem this morning as we study the concept of Israel being your vineyard. Uh, we pray for the peace and safety of that nation. We pray for wisdom amongst those people as they go to the polls this week to select a president. And Father, I pray that our nation would continue to support them, although we see that support eroding. It's still there, and it's still strong, and it's uh, largely evangelical Christians, born-again Christians who are behind it, and I pray that we would continue to stand firm on that position. Father, I pray for your blessing on everyone that's here today. I pray that you bless them and keep them in the coming week and help us to address the problems that we face in this sin-wracked world and help us to meet them with grace and dignity and above all, to remember that this period of time is our time when we are preparing to serve you for eternity. Thank you for this rain this morning, Lord. We pray we won't have any violent weather, but we pray that we'll get some nice soaking rains today. So we thank you for all of the blessings that you give us in this life. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to talk about Isaiah 5, 1 to 7 this morning, the vineyard, Yahweh's vineyard. But before we start, do a little background here. I want to talk about what a parable is, and I also want to talk a little bit about vineyards and their importance and how this uh, presents itself as a good figure for, for an identifica identification of Israel. So a parable then, this is um, Dr. Zook's definition. A parable is a form of figurative language involving comparisons, but rather than using a single word or phrase to make the comp comparison or analogy, as in a simile, metaphor, or a hypocatastasis, a parable is an extended analogy in story form. Now, I have no idea what a hypocatastasis is. <laughs> and I looked it up in my Oxford Dictionary, and it didn't have it. And I also have a grammar book at home, and it didn't have it. So if the grammar people don't care about what it is, I don't care either. But Dr. Zook apparently knew what it was. So anyway, a parable is a true-to-life story to illustrate or illuminate a truth. It's true to life, though it may not have actually occurred in all details as the story is presented. Historic events may serve as illustrations, but parables are special stories, not necessarily historic events, that are told to teach a particular truth. Now, in Hebrew, the word parable is mashal, 
And it primarily means a proverb, but it also refers to a parable, an oracle, a taunt, or a discourse. As a parable, it refers to a discourse type of short narrative with a symbolic meaning. To translate mashal simply as a proverb misses the wide sweep of the word. Uh, we're accustomed to think of a proverb as a short, pithy, epigrammatic saying which assumes the status of gnomic truth. In the Old Testament, however, the word mashal may be synonymous with an extended parable. It may refer to an extended didactic discourse, and that's somewhat what we're going to see here today in our, in our pericope. In the Septuagint, the Greek word parabole was used to translate the Hebrew word mashal, and in Greek, parabole is a rhetorical figure of speech setting one thing beside another to form a comparison or an illustration. It's primarily translated parable in our NASB uh, Bible, 47 out of the 50 uses of the word, and it's used three other ways, just once each, as a proverb, a type, and a symbol. And, th and this, this parabole is what we're most used to, what people say, to, to come alongside or to throw alongside. We hear that a lot. And it's actually a compound word. The word parable comes from the Greek para, beside or alongside, and balain, meaning to throw. Thus, a sto the story is thrown alongside the truth to illustrate the truth. Hearers and readers, by sensing the comparison or analogy between the story and their own situation, are prodded to think. In interpreting parables, we need to ask, what's the point of the story? What spiritual truth is being illustrated? What analogy is being made? Uh, parables are sometimes unusual and startling, but never unlifelike or fictitious. Now, one of the criticisms that we run into for little hermeneutics is people will say it's wooden. In other words, it cannot account for figurative symbolic language. But we know that's untrue. For example, and I'll give you an example here of what critics claim, they'll claim that the consistent use of literal hermeneutics must result in the interpretation of Christ as the door in John 10.9 must mean that, he, that we're saying he's a literal wooden door. Well, of course, we're not saying that. And I think that's a silly assertion, and it should be beneath the dignity of any theologian attempting to make a serious argument. But people are so angry about literal hermeneutics and dispensationalism, they'll resort to that kind of silliness to try to convince people that we are wrong in our theology. But figurative and symbolic uses of language always have literal reference. And what we're going to see today in our vineyard parable is that the literal reference will be identified within the parable itself at the end. <clears throat> so they have a literal referent, a corresponding reality, and literal hermen hermeneutics understands and accounts for that use of language. In fact, E.W. Bullinger, a uh, 19th century theologian, wrote a book on figures of speech in the Bible, identifying about 8,000 of them used in the scriptures in about 200 different categories. It's got a big, thick book on figures of speech in the Bible. <clears throat> and he said, all language is governed by law, but in order to increase the power of a word or the force of an expression, these laws are designedly departed from and words or sentences are thrown into and used in new forms or figures. Applied to words, a figure denotes some form which a word or sentence takes different from its ordinary and natural form. 
This is always for the purpose of giving additional force, more life, intensified feeling, and greater emphasis. A figure is simply a word or a sentence thrown into a peculiar form, different from its original or simplest meaning or use. <clears throat> Maybe one of the most common ones we might could think of is it's raining cats and dogs outside. We know it's not literal cats and dogs. We just say it's raining hard outside. We use these kinds of expressions in language all the time. They're very common. So now in the parable of the vineyard, the vineyard represents the nation Israel, which is confirmed in verse 7. So we'll see that when we get to that verse. It involves God's gracious provision for Israel, their unfaithful response, and the disciplinary measures he was going to impose for their failure. This should not be surprising, though, because throughout the Bible, vines, vineyards, and grapes are all used to symbolize Israel and the Jewish people. Viticulture has been an important agricultural component of life in that area for millennia, but the Bible attaches figurative importance to the industry as it relates to Israel. And the image of vines and vineyards was primarily a representation of prosperity and blessing and peace and safety, but the figure could also represent judgment. And our Isaiah pericope here today is going to represent both. For example, in terms of blessing, when Isaac was tricked into blessing Jacob with the firstborn's blessing, one of the blessings was God's gift of wine, which of course is a product of the vineyard. We see that in Genesis 27:28. Now may God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. Now this word new wine is tirosh, and it means must, new wine, sweet wine, or grape juice. It refers to recently pressed grape juice, either ready for fermentation or having just begun to ferment. Now, some people who try to claim the Bible forbids imbibing alcohol claim the use of the word wine always refers to new wine or grape juice, but that's untrue. This particular word is used in the Old Testament 37 times, and it's translated either wine, 26 out of the 37, or new wine, 11 out of the 37, so it would be translated either way. I am willing to suggest that when they say new wine, they're generally speaking about juice. But they use a lot of other words for wine that don't mean that. So, I, I mean, I heard a guy once spend a half an hour trying to convince people that Jesus never drank wine, that wine in the Bible always meant grape juice. Well, that's just not true. The word wine is the uh, yayin, and it means wine that is naturally processed, fermented grape juice, which in excess amounts can cause drunkenness. I mean, if wine was always grape juice, why would anybody get prohibited from, from getting drunk on it? And yet the Bible prohibits getting drunk on wine. Uh, so this word is used 140 times in the Old Testament, and it's translated wine 136 out of the 140. Twice it's translated as wineskins, and once each as a banquet and a vine. And then in Greek, the word for wine is oinos, and that means wine as a naturally fermented juice of grapes. And the word is always translated wine in the New Testament, 34 out of 34 times. So anyone who attempts to convince you that wine in the Bible always refers to non-alcoholic grape juice as being disingenuous, it is true they often watered it down for everyday consumption, but it was still wine, and it was also imbibed 
at full strength. I suspect that at the wedding celebrations, they did not drink watered-down wine they, and banquets and things like that. Uh, now, grapes were recognized to be a gift from God, and as such, the wine produced from grapes was part of the daily sacrifices as an offering back to God. And if we go back to Exodus 29, 40 and 41, we can see how these were wine was offered to God in the temple and the tabernacle. And there shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of beaten oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering with one lamb. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and you shall offer with it the same grain offering and the same drink offering as in the morning for a soothing aroma and offering by fire to the Lord. Now, the first fruits of the vineyard's produce was to be offered to God on an annual basis. And one of the issues in Isaiah is the fact that the production out of God's vineyard was worthless, and worthless things are unworthy to be used as an offering to God. But in Exodus 34:26, we see this concept of the first fruits. You shall bring the very first of the first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. In Deuteronomy 18:4, same thing. You shall give him the first fruits of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the first shearing of your sheep. Now, vineyards are also described in the Bible as a kingdom blessing, which, of course, we're not there yet. In Hosea 2:15. Then I will give her her vineyards from there, and the valley of Akor as a door of hope, and she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. So vineyards here represents some blessing in the millennial kingdom. And vineyards also characterize God's judgment on the rebellious nation. And one aspect of the curses God promised for Israel for national disobedience was, in fact, unproductive vineyards. Other prophets warned them of the same fate. Here, here's our blessings and curses chapter back in Deuteronomy 28, verse 30. You shall plant a vineyard, but you will not use its fruit. Amos 5.11 said the same thing. You've planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. And Zephaniah 1.13, same, and plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. So this could, rec this could represent judgment as well on the people. Now, vineyards not only produced wine, but fresh grapes were eaten, and raisins were produced from grapes and used as food. Grapes were preserved by drying them, the end product being raisins. They were eaten in the form of raisin cakes, which seemed to have been some sort of bread with raisins baked into it, and in the form of uh, of raisins pressed together in a lump. And I have to say that whenever I read raisin cakes in the Bible here, I always thought of pressed grapes into a lump. But apparently, they're, they're two different things. You have the, the raisin cake, which we would call raisin bread. And it's common. We still use it. And then they have the, the grapes all pressed together in a, in a cake. Some theologians think that that's all referring to raisin cake, but I think the Bible differentiates the two. And others think they represent two different ways to eat, which seems to be the correct view and what I've come to embrace anyway. The Bible sometimes describes them as being distributed in bunches or clusters. It makes me wonder if maybe they didn't cut clusters of grapes off the vine and just leave them clustered and then soak them in oil and water and just dry them right on the, on the vine. 
So they would have a cluster of raisins that way. I don't know, but that's what that suggests to me. So raisins are dried grapes prepared by soaking grapes in water and oil and drying them in the sun. Raisins were usually made into cakes, slow to spoil and high in sugar. Raisin cakes were ideal food for fighting men and travelers. We can see some biblical examples of this in 1 Chronicles 16.3. says that he distributed to everyone of Israel, both men and man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread and a portion of meat and a razor raisin cake, which is ashi shah. And in 1 Chronicles 12.40 here, we'll see this concept of bunches of raisins, 12.40 rather. Moreover, those who were near to them, even as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, brought fruit on donkeys, camels, mules, and on oxen, great quantities of flour cakes, fig cakes, and bunches of raisins, wine, oil, oxen, and sheep. There was joy indeed in Israel. So you see, we have the blessing aspect of the vineyards and the grapes, and we also can see a judgment aspect, uh, aspect to them. And one other product of grapes was a grape syrup, the Bible referred to as honey, which is uh, davash, but the word can mean honey produced either by bees or by grapes. So it's a molasses-like jelly, very sweet, that's produced by boiling. I'm unclear on whether they're boiling the grapes themselves or the grape juice, but nevertheless, something is boiled to produce them. And the Hebrew word translated honey refers to both types. So I'm thinking that sometimes when we read the word honey in the Bible, in the Old Testament, we automatically think the product of bees, but it may not be. It might be the product of grapes as well. So clearly, then, the concept of Israel and vineyards and the produce of those vineyards is intimately connected one with the other in terms of biblical revelation couched in figurative language. The emphasis the Bible places on vineyards also emphasizes the comparison made between Israel and a vineyard, Yahweh's vineyard. And we need to understand that in order to understand this parable in Isaiah 5, 1 to 7. Everyone in that culture knew the particulars of the preparation of the land, the cultivating, the planting, the harvesting of vineyards. So no one then could misunderstand what the prophet was revealing to them, especially in light of verse 7. But heeding the truth revealed was another issue altogether, of course. And for those of us today, I know there's a lot of viticulture going on around here, but most of us aren't involved in it, and we're not familiar with it today. So hearing some of these things in the Bible concerning grapes and vineyards and stuff is a little foreign to us. Even those of us who grew up on a farm uh, never raised grapes. We had some wild grapes going, but they weren't any good. And uh, so I, we don't know these things, but so it's interesting to look into them sometimes and see what the facts are behind them. All right, let's look at the first verse of our pericope today, Isaiah 5.1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard, my well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. Now, the Lord's relationship with the Jewish people is clearly expressed in this verse using two different words. In addition to expressing his own feelings toward Yahweh, Isaiah referred to Yahweh as the beloved and the well-beloved, which is also a description of the Yahweh-Israel relationship as it was created to be. So this is a two-way street. But here, Isaiah, in this first verse, I believe, is referring to God as the well-beloved. 
And well-beloved here is yadid, means a beloved person as a term of endearment. endearment. A beloved, and that word is doed, means a person dearly loved and cherished, someone preferred above all. It can also refer to an uncle, so context is key here. So when you consider that Yahweh created Israel to be his wife, these words take on added significance. They represent what was supposed to be a mutually loving, faithful relationship typified by faithful marriage partners. The fact that the Israelites rejected their marriage to God, their unfaithfulness as Yahweh's marriage partners becomes all the more reprehensible when considered in that light. But all is not lost because during the kingdom the relationship will be fully restored. They will finally realize that Yahweh is truly their beloved and they are his beloved as well. In Isaiah's day that re relationship was almost completely torn apart. Hosea 2.16, talk about the marriage relationship now. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you shall call me Ishi and will no longer call me Baali. Now that's talking about the restoration, but it's showing, it's indicating that the relationship had been severed and needed to be reestablished. The word Ish means male or husband. And this represents the relationship that Yahweh desired with Israel from the beginning, but they were unfaithful to that relationship. And that's why the Israelites' dalliances with the idols were so often referred to as adultery or harlotry. Their unfaithful alliances with other nations for protection, rather than relying on Yahweh for their defense, was also referred to as adultery and harlotry. Jeremiah has a couple good examples of these issues in Jeremiah 3.8. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. So you see this idea of going after idols was considered to be harlotry and adultery and worthy of a divorce. Uh, Jeremiah 5.7, why should I pardon you? Your sons have forsaken me and sworn by those who are not gods. When I had fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the harlot's house. So you see this issue of this marriage relationship between God and Israel. It's broken. Fertile hill here is uh, Karen Ben Shaman means a mountain slope of oil is what it literally means, which is a reference to a fertile fruitful, productive place to have a vineyard. Hill, Sharon, Sharon means a horn or the summit of a hill. And fertile, shaman, means olive oil or lotions. So in this context, it refers to the best products, formerly, formally, rather, olive oil. The choice of harvest or merchandise so having a high value as a figurative extension of fine, desirable olive oil. So in this case, it's referring to exceptionally fine, great production and whatever is produced from those grapes. The vineyard was situation upon a Karen, 
a karen, upon a prominent mountain peak projecting like a horn and therefore open to the sun on all sides. This mountain horn was Ben Shemen, a child of fatness. The fatness was innate. It belonged to it by nature. And this word Shemen is used as, as in uh, chapter 28.1 to denote the fertility of a nutritive body of soil. So in other words, the place where this vineyard's been planted is a very perfect, fertile place for God to put his vineyard. Now, considering how this parable ends in verse 7, this beginning verse is a bit deceptive, but it quickly turned to condemnation at the end of verse 2 and in verse 4. A call to the Israelites to judge between God and the unproductive vineyard in verse 3. Judgment in verses 5 and 6, and then the identification of the guilty party in verse 7. So some theologians reduce the meaning of the words well-beloved and beloved to friendship status, but that's not a tenable interpretation. There are no instances in the Old Testament, at least that I could find, where those words are used that way. Hebrew has a word for friend, and that's reah, that could have been used if that was the intention of the Holy Spirit to provide that meaning in this, in this verse. And when we consider the marriage relationship issue, then I think beloved and well-beloved is, is much better. Those who know the Hebrew well, which I don't, recognize a very rhythmic, lyrical flow to this pericope that is unseen in English. Uh, uh, Dr. Young said this, one is immediately struck with the richness of the imagery and the beauty of the language and agree, can agree with Skinner that this is one of the finest exhibitions of rhetorical skill and power which the book contains. Delich gives, gives expression to the beauty of the language when he says, the winged rhythm, the euphonic music, the sweet assonances of this appeal cannot be reproduced. Now, I don't know who talks that way, but anyway, he's saying it was very lyrical. Apparently. Now, in verse 2, Yahweh described the work he put into creating his vineyard only to have it produce a worthless grape instead of good grapes. So he dug it all around, he removed his stones, and he planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes but it produced only worthless ones. Now, this represents a tremendous amount of work. The agricultural practices of the time were labor-intensive. They did not have mechanized equipment to make their work go faster and more efficiently. Stones had to be physically removed in order to make the land tillable, and Israel is a particularly rocky area in most places. Once the rocks were removed, the ground was worked by means of hand tools, or at best, by animal-powered implements. He built a tower in the midst of the vineyard so he could watch over it and protect it from thieves, animal and human, and other dangers to the productivity of his vineyard. This was not a temporary booth, as so many of them had, but a sound stone structure that afforded the workers some measure of comfort and protection from the elements. Now, obviously, we're talking here about God establishing this vineyard. And this is figurative language, remember. So... But nevertheless, God labored to establish this vineyard however he did it. Now, I don't think he was down there meticulously picking up stones from the side of a hill. He's establishing a nation that he's calling his vineyard. But we get the picture here of the work involved in what was happening by means of this figurative speech. 
this metaphor. Now he expected it to be a productive vineyard, so he built a wine vat in the midst of it to process the grapes into grape juice for the various uses to which the juice was then put. Processing of grapes into juice involved pressing them out in an upper device, allowing the juice to flow through a trough connected to a storage container located below the press, which would then catch the grape juice for removal and processing. The upper press was called a gat, and the lower storage container was the wine vat, which is a rekev, which can refer to both the press and the vat in tandem, which we'll see here in, in Isaiah 16.10, where yakev is translated presses. But the two of them are also referred to as separate units. So you're not always sure if they're referring to both or one or the other, but if they use got, you know they're talking about a wine press. And that's how the word is used mostly in the Old Testament. But when you, you, you see the word um, vat, it might mean both together. Joel 3.13, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come and tread for the wine press, that's our word got, is full, the vats, yakev, overflow for their wickedness is great. So you can see that they're, differ they're differentiated there. You have the press pressing out the juice which goes into the vat. But in Isaiah 16.10, gladness and joy are taken away from the fruitful field. In the vineyards also there will be no cries of joy or jubilant shouting. No treader treads out wine in the presses, for I have made the shouting to cease. And here they're using the word yakev, meaning vat, what's translated vat very often, as the whole thing, the wine press together. So it can be used either way. But the, point, the important point here, though, isn't necessarily the mechanics of how it's done. The point here is that Yahweh planted it with the choicest vine. And that word is sorek which means a grapevine slip or shoot, referring to a branch or shoot of the domestic grape plant of very good quality. This was no ordinary grapevine the Lord planted. It was an exceptionally fine grapevine. It was a grapevine the Lord specifically created for his purposes, and it should have produced the best quality fruit imaginable. According to the constable, the Sorek vine was a vine that thrived between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea, especially in the Sorek Valley, and bore high-quality grapes. So whatever this was, this was the best that was planted. Israel was the best that God could plant. The word grapes is uh, a nav simply means grapes, the fruit of the grapevine. The word carries no connotations of quality at all. The NASB translators added the word good to the text, and I'm assuming they added the word good as a contrast to the worthless grapes that were actually produced, but that addition wasn't necessary. God planted the best of the vines in that vineyard. Good grapes are the necessary result of good stock and sound viticulture practices both of which he provided. And a number of other translations don't put that in there. The King James, the American Standard, the Revised Standard, the Lexham Bible, and the English Standard all have, I think, a more literal and textually accurate translation. The, the New American Standard would have been accurate if they had not added the explanatory word, 
words good, that in particular that word, and only to the text. So you see here Isaiah 5.2, I crossed that out, they expanded it to produce, should have read, then exp expected it to produce grapes, but it produced worthless ones. And you see that's how these other versions, the other three I have up here do it, King James, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And he waited for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, and so on. So you didn't, those explanatory words really didn't need to be stuck in there, I don't think. The word workless is baush, and it means wild grapes or bad grapes that are sour, hard, unripe, and even rotten, and therefore stinking, rendering them worthless. If not properly cared for, even good grapes can become rotten and worthless. And this is obviously not the crop God expected to reap from the Israelites, his vineyard. And the concept of patience is implied in this text, too. It's not specifically called out here, but getting the plot of land ready and the vines planted is hard, time-consuming work. Vineyards don't start producing right away, and it takes time to get them up to full production. And after the vines are planted, it's two years before they can begin producing a harvestable product. So you see, I'm just suggesting that that's showing the patience that God has shown throughout Israel's history in forming them into the nation that he wanted them to be. So we know, obviously, the fruit Yahweh expected to be produced in his vineyard was spiritual fruit, but the figure used to represent that truth was the production of grapes. So the exceptional vine he planted, Israel, in other words, only produced worthless spiritual fruit. Now, in verses 3 and 4, the Israelites were called upon to make a decision, Shaphat, Isaiah 5, 3 and 4. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce the worthless ones? So in the same way that Yahweh, through the prophet Nathan, had David condemn himself over his sin with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 12, Yahweh now, through the prophet Isaiah, will have the Israelites of Judah and Jerusalem condemn themselves. The facts of the case are clear. The owner of the vineyard expect, expended every effort to establish a productive vineyard, but it only produced worthless, wild, rotten grapes. The word judge here, shafat, means to judge, to govern, to pass judgment, or to administer justice. It refers to hearing and judging a legal case. Constable said this, he said, Isaiah next appealed to his audience, the people of Jerusalem and Judah, speaking for his well-beloved, meaning God. He asked them for their opinion. What more could he have done to ensure a good crop? Why did his vines produce worthless or sour grapes in view of what the owner had done? And the answers would have to be, you could have done nothing more than you did, and the grapes were the cause of the disappointment, not you. Now, unlike David, the Israelites of Isaiah's day never recognized their guilt, never changed their minds, and never returned to Yahweh in faithful adherence to the Mosaic law. They continued to reject the role they were created to fill, which was to be a kingdom of priests and a holy 
nation. And God told them that clear back in Exodus 19, 6. And now we're here centuries later, and they have not fulfilled that role. They have not produced that spiritual fruit they were supposed to do. And presumably, in this case, the people never answered the prophet's questions. So by the time of the prophet Jeremiah, immediately prior to destruction wrought by Babylon, the choice vine had been replaced by a wild vine, Jeremiah 2.21. Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? So Jeremiah reminded the Israelites that God had planted them as a choice vine, that sorek vine, and he used a completely faithful seed to do it. God created Israel to begin her existence as a completely faithful seed. Kula, Zerah, Emet, a faithful seed. And he planted her to be just that. As such, she should have produced exceptionally fine fruit, fruit that would have propagated more exceptional fruit. But she rebelled against Yahweh and his intentions for her as his people and nation and turned themselves and their nation into a wild, worthless vine. This word turned here is hafak, and it means to change or turn into. It refers to It refers to changing the essential form or nature of something. Now, this is something the Israelites did to themselves. They knew the right way, and they deliberately, knowingly chose the wrong way. They changed what was exceptionally fine into something that was utterly worthless. God did not do it. The Israelites chose to do it to themselves. Degenerate here, the word is sewer, means corrupt or degenerate, that which is touched by rot, or decay. That's not a pretty picture of what, how God is viewing Israel at that time. It pertains to what is untrained or unpruned and so of little or no value. And you can see the vineyard uh, connections there in that word, untrained or unpruned. What, the grapevines are trained and they're pruned to do what they're supposed to do. In this context, the word represents that what was once a fine vineyard had become a worthless vineyard. This word foreign here is uh, nakri, and it means foreign, alien, or wild. But essentially here, it refers to a person who does not belong to the nation of Israel by ancestry. It may also relate to adultery. So we see how this concept, again, of the marriage relationship between Yahweh and Israel plays into this. Israel turned away from being a pure, so vine, into being an adulterous and therefore worthless knock vine that was no longer of God. It had become an alien vine. In the Song of Moses, the shocking fall of Israel was predicted, and that was also presented in the metaphor of a vine. It's all the more horrifying when consider the real issue is spiritual fruit and not merely the produce of the vineyard, which was grapes, of course. But back in Deuteronomy 33, 32 and 33, Moses said this, For their vine is from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison, their clusters bitter, their wine is venom of serpents and the deadly poison of cobras. That's not a good picture for people that were supposed to be God's priests to the world. The degenerate vine was no longer a vine of Yahweh, but had become a vine of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And those cities obviously stand for evil, making them worthy of destruction. If we go back and read in Genesis, that's what happened. The fruit pr produced was not what was originally intended, which was exceptionally fine, spiritually pure fruit, but became deadly spiritual poison instead. Grapes of poison, and this word here is roche, means in this context, a poisonous plant, poison, or venom. In this context, it refers to a substance that will harm or kill a living or organism, and this substance is usually made of plants. And this is in contrast to the fruit of the vine that was supposed to be fine and not harmful, but the spiritual fruit the nation was producing was harmful and not beneficial. The word bitter is uh, marora, means a bitter thing, gall, or poison. Now, if you've ever tasted meat that has been inadvertently tainted by a, a gallbladder, then you know the kind of bitter to which this word refers. You know, you can buy chicken livers in one-pound little cartons, and sometimes if one of those guys doesn't get the gallbladder off of there without breaking it, if you've ever cooked those and tried to eat them with that gallbladder mixed in there, you know exactly how bitterly awful that tastes. Now, some of you don't eat liver. I know. I like this stuff. I'm a farm kid. What can I say? But when that gall gets mixed in there, you, you can't eat that stuff. It's bitter. It's really an awful, revolting taste, I'm telling you. Now, spiritual matters are not meant to be revolting, but that's what Israel was producing. So you can see this picture here. I mean, that is the perfect picture of just the bitterness that, that Israel was producing that was just distasteful to people rather than being something pleasant that they would be attracted to and drawn to. Serpent venom, chema, means wrath, heat, or rage. Figuratively, it may refer to poison, hence the connection to serpents in this verse. And obviously, these are not spiritual qualities, and they're not the product of walking in the spirit, resulting in the production of spiritual fruit. The word deadly is achzar, and it means deadly, ruthless, or heartless, all of which describe the state of Yahweh's Israelite vineyard. The Israelites were created to be a light to the world as Yahweh's priests. Instead, they were participating in the darkness of Satan's world system, exactly what they were not supposed to be doing. Israel was supposed to be a benevolent nation, not a cruel, heartless nation. In addition to the grapes, poison was related to the deadly bite of the cobra. And instead of revealing to the world the life that can only be found in a relationship to Yahweh, the Israelites were poisoning the world through their unfaithfulness to God, their failure to be God's priest to the world, and their embrace of the world. So they, they were unfaithful to God, they failed to be his priests, and they embraced the world system. So they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. They rejected the fact of separation from the world and joined the world instead. Now, because Israel was not producing the exceptional spiritual fruit they were created to produce and had instead rejected Yahweh and produced poisonous spiritual fruit, they were going to suffer divine discipline. And we see this in Isaiah 5, 5 and 6. So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, 
and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. Now, some of the curses Israel was promised for their disobedience, when we go back again to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and curses, some of the curses included crop failure, desecration of the land, and drought, all of which would destroy the Israelite vineyard. Removing the hedge and breaking down the wall around the field would allow varmints, livestock, and thieves to plunder the plants and produce and ruin the soil. Drought would destroy any chances of producing a crop. And once these things happened, the vineyard would become neglected and be in a state of disrepair, rendering it a wasteland rather than a productive piece of property. And for anybody who's involved in agricultural, you know how much work is involved in keeping something up. Well, this wasn't going to be kept up, and God was going to see to it that it failed. But we have to notice that it is God who's bringing about these conditions. While it was the Israelites who made themselves odious in God's sight, the punishment for that is going to be God's doing. Uh, these punitive disciplinary actions against the nation would be God's work. This is deliberate, divine intervention in the affairs of Israel, God's vineyard. The ultimate goal of divine discipline is restoration, but that will not finally be accomplished until the end of the time of Jacob's distress. This is going to happen to the Israelites several times, over and over again throughout their history, until finally, at the end of the tribulation, they are going to cry out the Messianic cry, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Isaiah related the desecration of the vineyard with the agents God would use to impose divine discipline on Judah and Jerusalem, which would result in the conditions described here. The only reason this takes place is because Yahweh is going to allow it to happen. The bottom line is, if the vineyard will not produce, then the vineyard will be destroyed and removed. This should not be a surprise. Moses warned them of the consequences for rebellion and disobedience hundreds of years before, and Isaiah will speak of this later in Isaiah 7.25. As for all the hills which used to be cultivated with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place for pasturing auction and for sheep to trample. So you're going to remove the vineyards. Other people are going to come in and pasture their livestock there. In verse 7, then, it's finally revealed that the vineyard is Israel and Judah, and the owner of the vineyard is Yahweh. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So the vineyard was created to be a beacon of justice, and righteousness in a dark world of injustice and unrighteousness, but Israel failed in that assignment and instead became a nation of bloodshed and distress. The land was filled with violence and the cries of people who were experiencing pain and sorrow. And ultimately, this necessitated Israel's and Judah's removal from the land for disciplinary purposes. Now, the Lord used a variation of the parable of the vineyard to condemn the leadership of Israel at, uh, during his first advent in Matthew 21:33, and he said, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it, 
and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. So you see, the Lord is using this very same concept out of Isaiah several hundred years later here in connection with Israel. Had they learned their lesson in the meantime? Had Assyria taught anything? Taught them anything? Had Babylon taught them anything? Had the Greeks taught them anything? Had the Romans taught them anything? No, nothing. Then in a few verses later, he reiterated what the, what the people did that were in charge of the vineyard in Matthew 21, 34 to 39. He said, the farmers killed the owner's slaves and then his son. This was a picture of the prophets and men of God throughout the centuries of Israel's rebellion, culminating in the rejection of God the son and his subsequent murder. Just as Isaiah's rendition of this parable was designed to get the Israelites to condemn themselves, so the Lord's presentation was designed to get the leadership of Israel to condemn themselves. And they did. When they realized what they'd done, they resolved all the more to kill him, though. It didn't change their mind. They said, well, we've got to kill this guy. He's figured us out. Anyway, Matthew 21, 40 to 46. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and they will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And that's where they condemned themselves, right there. And Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Now Isaiah also predicted the desecration of Yahweh's vineyard at the hands of those who were supposed to be shepherds of his flock. The destruction of Yahweh's vineyard took various forms at various times in progressive stages. It ebbed and flowed for centuries. As I mentioned a minute ago, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, and other lesser powers throughout the year, years all played a role in God's disciplinary program for Israel. But most disheartening was the rebellious leadership that should have known better. And of course, that's who Jesus was addressing in what we just read there in that parable the leadership. It was the leadership at the time who rejected him, the unpardonable sin. And then it will be the leadership at the end of the tribulation who will finally lead the people into accepting Messiah. Jeremiah talked about these worthless shepherds in Jeremiah 12, 10, 11. Many shepherds have ruined my vineyard. They have trampled down my field. They have made my pleasant field a desolate wilderness. It has been made a desolation. Desolate, it mourns before me. The whole land has been made desolate because no man lays it to heart. Now we can't, though, lay it all on the leadership. We can't discount the role of a disobedient, rebellious people either. The people wanted to reject Yahweh and they wanted to embrace idolatry. Hosea 10, 1 to 3, which is a whole book about the marriage relationship, the divorce, and so on. Israel's luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. 
The more his fruit, the more altars he made, the richer his land, the better he made their sacred pillars. Their heart is faithless, now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. Surely now they will say, we have no king, for we do not revere the Lord. As for the king, what can he do for us? So the, the idea that the Israelites were God's people led them to believe that they could do whatever they wanted to do without consequence, and despite the warnings they received throughout their history from Moses and the prophets. We see examples of this in the New Testament, Matthew 3, 9. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. And in John 9, 28 and 29, they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. So you see, they were relying on the fact they were Jews, and they had the temple, and they had their religion. John the Baptist says, hey, God can raise up sons of Abraham out of these rocks. You know, so you're nobody. The concept of Israel as Yahweh's vineyard is a very important figure of speech then throughout the scriptures representing God's establishment of the vineyard, its maintenance, its protection, its discipline, its destruction, and ultimately its restoration. Now there's an application in this situation for those of us who are in the body of Christ in this age. We cannot lose our justification salvation, but we can suffer divine discipline for failing to advance in terms of sanctification, salvation, and the production of spiritual fruit that should result from a faithful walk. We are saved at a moment in time for eternity, but we are also saved then to do good works, to glorify his name, to do his will, to prepare ourselves to serve him for eternity. That's what we're supposed to be doing now, preparing ourselves for those assignments that are yet to come. And we, can, we will reap rewards for being faithful to do that. We will lose rewards and therefore responsibilities in the kingdom if we fail to do that. And if we are rebellious enough in our walk, the Bible indicates in the New Testament that we can be removed as well. Paul said about some of the Corinthians who were unworthily participating in the, in the uh, Lord's Supper that that's why they sleep. They were taken out by the Lord. Divine discipline. They didn't lose their salvation, but they lost their chance to continue to be sanctified in advance and serve him and reap the rewards that they may have otherwise reaped. Anyway, it's a serious issue. Uh, we are often accused, of course, of being antinomian as we believe people can be saved and go live like hell, as one guy told me one time. And that's, that's true. People can do that but they're going to reap what they sow and they're not going to be rewarded and they may suffer divine discipline in this life. We don't encourage that. We don't believe that's the way we should live our lives. We should be working, serving, and glorifying his name in all that we do and working for those rewards that he's going to hand out at the judgment seat of Christ. All these are important issues. So I think there are, there are applications here in this Isaiah parable of the vineyard that can be applicable to us in our walk as well. Israel was unfaithful in their walk. They were created to be faithful and productive. We are saved to be faithful and productive. The question is, are we? Only each one of us can examine ourselves and answer that. Because someday the Lord's going to tell you how he viewed it. And you probably want a good report when you get there. <laughs>
All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for these amazing truths that are in your Bible. We thank you for all the revelation you've given us concerning your plan and for Israel and their history. And, and I pray that each one of us can learn from the mistakes that they made in terms of our own walk and that we would be faithful and serve you and glorify you and honor your name in all that we do. I pray that you would help us to be alert for opportunities to tell other people about Jesus Christ who need to hear him. We are in the midst of a hugely lost world that many, many people need to hear about the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ, and it's our job to tell them. And I pray that you will make us aware of opportunities where we can do just that. Father, I do pray for your blessing on everybody here today in the coming week. I pray that you bless them and keep them and keep them safe from, from all the problems in this world today. And Help us to keep our eyes focused on you, living our life with a biblical worldview so that we can serve you and honor you and do all the things we need to do to be uh, sanctified in this life as we, as we journey through it. Uh, I pray for your blessing on our pastor today as he brings us a message in the next hour. I pray for your uh, blessing on his ministry, on, on his studies. I pray for his new ministry coming up in, uh, uh, when, he, when he moves away and assumes the pulpit in another church. I pray that you would bring us the man that you would have us to have here to fill his place. And I pray for his wife and his children as they minister alongside him. I pray that they are healthy and, and well cared for and, and, and meet life's challenges head on as the rest of us. I pray that we do as well. I pray for our elders and our deacons that, that we serve well and that we lead well. I pray for everyone in this church, Lord. There are myriads of problems in this sinful world among people who belong to you, and I pray that you help us meet them, heal us if we need it, uh, help us solve our problems and lead us and guide us in everything that we do. And, and uh, we're just grateful that we're here today. We're grateful we can be in this place where we can study the word of God and teach about Jesus Christ and preach the gospel. Those are great blessings. A lot, of people, a lot of Christians around the world do not have these blessings, and I pray that you, you help us to support those ministries that are around the world, uh, helping pastors who never knew uh, the gospel but are trying to be faithful to teach the Bible, and they just don't know what they're doing. And, and uh, Village Ministries International and Grace Life and some of the other ministries we support do a great job of finding pastors in areas that need some training and helping them to, to learn the gospel of grace and to be able to teach people the Bible rightly divided and not just guessing at what it means. And I pray that you bless those pastors around the world who, who are in those positions and keep them safe and help them to learn so that they can not mislead people away from the truth but lead them to the truth instead. So we thank you for your presence with us here today in this house. In Jesus' name, amen.